Coming up today, Matt Reynolds meets the coronavirus long haulers, Matt Burgess tracks the rise and fall of Pret-a-Manger, and Amit explains why lie detectors are creeping into British policing. Welcome to the Wired UK podcast your essential weekly catch-up on all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, James Temperton, and joining me today are Matt Burgess. Hello. Amit Kawala. Hello. And Matt Reynolds. Hello. This was the week when Microsoft revealed the price for the Xbox Series X, its next-gen games console. The Series X will cost £449 when it launches on November 10th. A less powerful version of the console, the Series S, will cost just £250. This was also the week when the Chinese embassy in the UK asked Twitter to conduct thorough investigations after its ambassador's official account was spotted to have liked a porn video with Chinese language descriptions. The account had also liked tweets critical of China with officials saying the account had been attacked. All the posts have now been unliked by whoever controls the account. And it was also the week when we found out that the UK government plans to test millions of people every day in an effort to curb coronavirus. It would cost £100 billion, and right now we're on around 350,000 tests a day. So I can see why the government documents describe this as a moonshot. And finally, this was the week when the skies over California turned orange as a result of wildfires. Uh, There are currently 28 major blazes being tackled by more than 14,000 firefighters. The photos and videos coming out of California are absolutely extraordinary. If 2020 didn't already feel like the apocalypse, then it now definitely looks like it. It's bizarre, isn't it? It looks a bit like Blade Runner. Someone someone has set some footage from San Francisco to some of the music from, from the, the latest Blade Runner film, and it is properly dystopian. Yeah, the year doesn't get any better. All right, cheer me with some facts. What did you learn this week, Matt Burgess? This week, I learnt that the average pencil apparently holds enough graphite to draw about 30, a line about 35 miles long or to write at roughly 45,000 words. Uh, however, uh, according to Pencils.com, where I got this fact, um, <laughs> it, it's never actually been tested. Um, so um, it's, I'm, a, I'm a little bit dubious. Do you need a new hobby? <laughs> what do you mean browsing pencils.com isn't quite uh good enough or... no i was i was going to suggest get yourself a pencil um forty five thousand words i mean you could probably write that in a weekend so between now and the start of the next working week you could finally have tested this that could yeah i could be the person that either proves or disproves this but i, I don't think it's i don't think it's it's possibly real because if you apply different pressure then you'll uh be using up more of the pencil faster so um i don't think there's enough uh fact behind uh, or enough rigor behind my fact to be honest i should have done better probably easier just to get a robot to do it not the fact the the penciling um what, what were you doing on pencils.com do you just type in random nouns and then dot com and see what happens uh i was uh googling for facts about anything um because i didn't i hadn't learned anything this week and there was a pencil on the desk in front of me so i decided to google pencil facts <laughs> oh my god matt strong strong 
what, yeah, well, yeah, I mean, that, that, that sort of sh- shows how exciting um, everyone's lives are at the moment. You looked at a pencil and were intrigued to know more. Amit, what did you learn this week? Uh, I learned that you can you that you only breathe out of one nostril at a time. So our bodies switch nostrils every four hours or so in what's called the nasal cycle. Uh, that fact brought to you by noses.com. <laughs> that cannot be true. It is. Apparently it's true for 85% of people. So there is... Um, a kind of structure at the top of your nose that uh, swells up on on different sides, and there's sort of, there's, there's a bunch of kind of biological reasons why this is a good thing to do. It kind of um, helps keep a kind of mixture of different airflow speeds coming into your um, nose, so that you can smell a wider variety of different smells and things like that. There's, there's all sorts of uh, kind of benefits to this, uh, but yeah, it might be something that you've never actually noticed. I'm I'm quietly trying to test this now by holding my hand underneath my nose while breathing out, which is probably great on on a podcast. Heavy breathing. Um, it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't seem right. I can feel like two drafts. Please don't fact check my facts live during the recording, James. This is very very poor form. Um, but I, I, I think that, I think it's when news. you're. Yeah, so you could be one of the uh, you know nose freaks who doesn't adhere to this uh, nasal cycle, or, or it could be that it's kind of when you're consciously thinking about it, it kind of changes the the system you know what i mean a bit like you know breathing when you when you think about it you you breathe differently to when you're not thinking about it right so it's like quantum weirdness yes exactly but in the in the nasal area good thank you very much um if if people at home would like to test this out there's there's probably ways of working out if you're a two nostril breather or one nostril breather let us know podcast at wired.co.uk what did you learn this week matt reynolds yeah well just to chip in on that, I also did the nostril test, and I think that I'm also a two-nostril nostril breather. So in our sample size, that's 50% already. So I, all I'm saying, Amit, is that I think go out, survey 100 people, and then let's, let's find out if this 85% stacks up. But Sorry, n- now is fact, probably not the time to be surveying people's breathing. I think I'd rather do, I'd rather do this task over the weekend than Matt Burgess's task of writing 45,000 words. So uh, I'll, I'll go out with my clipboard and report back to you on Monday. Okay, I'm looking forward to both of those results. So my fact was that 70% of all air cargo that leaves Norway is seafood. And almost all of that air cargo, uh, all of that seafood is salmon. Salmon is such a vital part of the country's airline industry that passenger flights between Norway and East Asia are called the salmon run. So basically, whenever you get on a plane out of Norway, there's a good chance there's just a whole ton of salad. No, salad? Salmon in the hold below you. Maybe salad as well, you know. Could be the other 30%. Okay, so your task for the weekend is to get on a flight to Norway and then fly back and see how much salmon you're you're flying with. Done. Done, cool. Uh, I learnt this week, I mean, mine's very boring. Um, One in 10 US households owns a boat, which is astonishing when you think about it, because an awful lot of the US probably isn't that near water. So that's more than 17 million recreational boats. It's a lot of boats. Silence. Everyone is stunned into silence. I should tell you about an event that we've got coming up. Wired Health Tech is taking place virtually, of course, on September 22nd. That's just a couple of weeks away. 
It's a brand new event all about the innovation, tech and ideas behind the future of patient care. It's being broadcast live on the internet throughout the day with loads of great speakers and interactive workshops to enjoy. Speakers include Eric Topol, who's one of the most cited medical researchers of all time, Jennifer Doudna, the co-inventor of CRISPR, and Heidi Larson, who's the director of and founder of the Vaccine Confidence Project. We've got a really good deal on our all access event pass for podcast listeners. Both you and a colleague or friend can attend all the virtual sessions, including workshops for the low, low price of 90 pounds. That's a saving of 50 quid. It will be an insightful, inspiring virtual day. So please do take us up on this great offer. To find out more and to book your discount tickets, head to wired.uk forward slash health dash podcast. Matt Burgess. That URL, again, is wired.uk, not co.uk, just wired.uk forward slash health dash podcast. We hope to virtually see you there. Our first story this week, Matt Reynolds, is about people who are, to use a shorthand, living in hell. Yeah, that's right. So this is all about people that are still experiencing symptoms from COVID-19, a group that is you kind of calls themselves long haulers. So I'm going to start off by talking about someone in particular uh, who's called Bethany, and she lives in Portland, uh, Oregon, in the USA. So the last time that Bethany felt normal, really, was March 15th. So that's 179 days ago as we're recording today. So every day for the last five and a half months, her you know, body has played host to a whole range of symptoms. So she's had fever, chills, chest pain, uh, sickness and diarrhea, dizziness, rashes. Uh, she's coughed up blood and has had extreme fatigue and body aches every single day. And this is really representative of a whole bunch of people that we're starting to realise have COVID-19 symptoms for a really, really long time, months and months and months, which is really kind of challenging our definition of what we thought of of the disease. I've read a little bit about this, but how much of a problem is it? How many long haulers are there out there? Yeah, so I think the short answer is we don't really know, because although we've got quite solid data on, say, confirmed test results, so we know how many confirmed cases there are. There's nowhere near that kind of level of rigour that's applied to the study of long haulers. We do have a few data points, though. So there's a symptom checking track in the UK that is run out of King's College London, and that suggests that around one in 10 people who fall ill with COVID-19 might still have symptoms three weeks after the disease. And I think they've also brought out some updated statistics that say there's maybe 300,000 of these long haulers in the UK. So a study of Italian patients found that around 90%, it was 87% of people hospitalised with COVID-19 still experienced symptoms two months after they fell ill. And a survey of doctors from the British Medical Association found that a third of all doctors had treated patients with long-term COVID-19 symptoms. But... Bethany has another challenge to you know, add to a long list of difficulties she's already got. And this is actually really true of a whole bunch of people with long-term COVID-19 symptoms. So she's never actually tested positive for the disease. And that means that if you count the definitions of the US Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and its European equivalent, it means that actually she doesn't qualify as a confirmed COVID-19 case. So where you see those statistics that say... Um, you know, 6.4 million people in the USA have 
contracted COVID-19. Bethany isn't in that list of people, even though she's been suffering with these symptoms months and months and months. And actually, loads and loads of COVID-19 long haulers are in a really similar situation. So in May, a patient-led research team released the results of a survey that covered uh, about six and a half, uh, 640 uh, people with long-term COVID-19 symptoms. And they found that less than a quarter of those had had a positive test result. Around 27.5% had had a negative test, and the rest weren't tested at all. So we've got all these people that are suffering with these symptoms of long-term COVID-19, but they've either got tests that say they're negative, or they haven't had a test at all. So this, this obviously must leave them in quite a difficult position, because it, it's clearly quite a debilitating uh, illness, even you know, uh, two or three months after the fact, or up to six months after the fact, in, in Bethany's case. Um, but without a kind of positive test to point to what have the reactions been like from you know their co-workers or their doctors to, to this uh but what i guess if you don't have a positive test it's actually effectively a, a mystery illness yeah exactly and, and, and before i get onto that actually I, I probably should say that there are a couple of reasons why all these people have negative test results and and it, it funnily enough in the uk this all boils down to this problem about not testing really really early on in the epidemic so there's kind of a two-month uh, period of time where anyone that had the illness in the community wasn't tested unless they were hospitalized and we know that for swab tests uh, unless you get tested around the three day after symptoms appear around that mark, then there's quite a good chance that your fo- your test will come back negative. For antibodies, there's also kind of problems with when when you take the test, and also with the levels of antibodies they 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 test. So actually, there's lots of reasons why you might have a negative test result, either a swab test or an antibody test. Um, so even a negative test result doesn't necessarily rule you out from um, having long term symptoms. But yeah, like you say, Amit. What I've kind of been hearing is all these stories of people that are you know, ignored by doctors, they're pressured back into work by employers, um, they're disbelieved by friends that didn't uh, because you know, their experience doesn't match what they think of as a COVID-19 patient. So I spoke to one woman from Baltimore and she said she'd had you know, nine negative uh, tw- uh, test results, nine negative swab tests, but months after feeling, uh, feeling ill, she still got these... Um, you know, muscle weakness, she's still got extreme fatigue and she would go to the doctor and she described it as being treated with an air of dismissal because she doesn't have a positive test results. And so, and you hear this again and again, people are told, well, you're anxious or you're depressed um, or we kind of don't have a diagnosis for you. And what, and what this, this woman, Shamir, told me was, you know, I'm depressed because I've been sick for four months and no one seems to be listening or can provide me with any answers. That's the problem. It's not... Uh, this, yeah, this other problem. So it's this real kind of sense of frustration, and I think being locked out of the health system almost. Yes, yeah, so I guess people in this position would obviously be quite frustrated and looking for answers and any sort of help or anything that can sort of try to improve their situation. Um, so is there anything that they're sort of doing, taking this into their own hands um, or anything along those lines? Yeah, so really what we found that in the absence of any official data, as you said, what support groups are doing is really gathering their own. So there's one really quite influential support group um, that's called you know, Body Politic. And I, I think they existed before, but they've you know, really become really um, prominent in, this, in the kind of COVID-19 long hauler movement. And they did their own survey of 640 long haulers. And they you know, painted one of the few pictures that we really have of, of, of long haulers. And they found that they tend to skew younger. They tend to be people that are physically healthy before their illness. They tend to get a broad range of symptoms and they tend to often have these symptoms 
occur at different stages in their illness. So someone might not feel nauseous for, you know, three months and they'll suddenly get that four months in or, or something like that. Um, and, and, and what's really interesting is that it kind of because of this sea of uncertainty, uncertainty COVID long haulers have really forced to become experts on their own condition. So you speak to enough of them, and I spoke to probably a dozen long haulers as, as part of this story that's on, on the website, and you start to see the hallmarks of people who have constantly had to recite their journey and their illness again and again in an effort to convince people that their illness deserves to be seen. So... And this is an experience that long haulers share with sufferers of other long-term illnesses, such as you know, chronic fatigue syndrome. So what you find is you speak to a long hauler and they'll tell you exactly when they first fell ill, they'll tell you the date that they felt each new symptom, and they'll often say, and you know, I know that COVID-19 can have an effect on the brain, because look at this paper and look at what we're learning about neurological symptoms. And so what you find is that they, because of this um, I guess lack of a response from the medical community and, and lack of acknowledgement out there, they've really become uh, the best informed people there are really about this condition. And as you say, this isn't unique to coronavirus, but we're seeing so many cases of it because there are so many cases of COVID-19. It just means that there's a, a, a more people being infected with it. So there's more people exhibiting these strange long haul symptoms. So is this a case of a delayed immune response or a broken immune response, something strange happening once the virus has left the body, so they no longer test positive, but their body is still fighting an illness that they no longer have? Yeah, so the short answer to that is we don't really know. And the long answer is it's probably something like that. So the the general hypothesis of why um, viruses can cause what's called a kind of post-viral syndrome is because we think that the immune system really ramps up to uh, fight the infection at the point of infection and it never really calms down afterwards so it's a little bit like you know one one doctor i spoke to said it's like you have an army and they're fighting an enemy but they keep on fighting even though the enemies you know run away and, and what that army ends up doing is killing its own soldiers so that might explain why people with these post-viral syndromes show such wide-ranging symptoms. But it doesn't really help us understand um, why some people have this reaction where, while other people just have a kind of short-lasting illness. And, and there's all kinds of theories about why this might be. So it could be influenced by genetics, it could be to do with the amount of virus someone was exposed to, or it might be down to the other diseases they've been, they've been exposed to in the past. So there's all these kind of questions that this vast group of people suffering with post-viral syndrome might be able to get us answers to but what you can do is look to the epidemics of the recent past to get a sense of you know how people do months and months after their illness and we know that if you look at the SARS epidemic in 2003 for example there's one study of 22 patients in Toronto who had had the virus and it found that all of, but one of them were unable to return to their former, former occupations 20 months after they'd been ill, another wider study of, of Toronto people with, with SARS found that you know, on the one-year mark, 87% of them still had symptoms. So we do know that these severe coronaviruses, obviously SARS was a coronavirus as well, can provoke these responses that lead to long-term symptoms. So you, you know, this isn't completely shocking to immunologists and, and to doctors, even if the specific situation is kind of surprising. I guess what's scary about it is that these aren't necessarily the people that were, you know, had the worst cases of COVID-19 initially. Uh, Obviously, you know, it it kind of makes sense to me that, like, if you were hospitalised with the disease, perhaps that you'd have a kind of longer tail. Um, But this isn't, that isn't necessarily the case for all the people you spoke to, is it? Um, But are there any kind of 
is there any research being done to try and help some of these long haulers? Yeah, so, and, and that's absolutely right, Amit. That, uh, one of the things that came up again and again is that, is that really, if you want, at the moment, our typical image of a long hauler is probably a middle-aged, healthy woman. And that is actually very different to your idea of who is badly affected by COVID-19, which would probably be uh, an older man, usually you know, a quite old man, maybe in, the, in their 70s or 80s. And, and this is one of those things that, that is kind of... Uh, defying doctors' perceptions because, like you say, a lot of the places that are set up are to help people that have been hit most severely. So there's a centre in Surrey in the UK, the Seacole Centre, that is about helping people after they've had COVID-19 to rehabilitate um, after hospitals. After hospital, because as you say, if you've been in ICU, there's all kinds of problems with maybe muscle muscle wastage, wastage, or maybe um, fitness or breathing. So there's lots of um, problems you expect to see with the severely ill that you don't expect to see in people that got more mild versions of the disease. But there are now a couple of studies that are starting to look at these milder cases. So I spoke to one person, Charlotte Bolton, and she's a, uh, she's a kind of um, a respiratory researcher at the University of Nottingham. And she's doing this funding where she state, uh, and she's doing this funding and clinics actually, she's doing a study that is funded, sorry. And, and has clinics alongside that as well. And she takes these people from GP referrals and she's starting to track how they're functioning and trying to tailor recovery programs to their needs. And at Sheffield Hallam University, someone called Caroline Dalton is also trying to track this recovery because there's all kinds of questions that you don't really want to give the person uh, the wrong advice. So people with long-haul COVID-19 often report that, say, they were getting better for three weeks and then they went out and tried to have a run or maybe even just tried to have a walk to the end of the block or, you know, whatever, a mile, and they it completely knocked off their recovery, right? It completely knocked them off kilter and they found out this completely sets them back. And that's actually really different from lots of illnesses. You tend to recommend that you build up your exercise, but it might be the case that with long haulers or a certain subset of long haulers actually ramping up exercise makes them even worse so it's all these kind of questions that we're just starting to find out um and you know this is six months in so so people are just hoping this will help the people for the next six months and and you know people that end up having long-term symptoms in the future as well getting a better understanding of whatever's happening here will also help us to understand risk right which is a super important issue as we get used to living with this virus potentially for a very long time until there's a vaccine that works and that vaccine is used widely across the world because when we talk about risk people in their 20s 30s 40s technically according to the numbers have a very low risk of severe disease but these people don't count in those numbers because they're not counted and I think we'd all agree that living with fairly debilitating symptoms for nearly six months isn't something that we'd like to happen to us. So in everyone's calculation of risk and what they're happy doing, understanding long haul COVID is going to be really important to how we open up society. Yeah, exactly. And we have started to see the government acknowledge that. So I think Matt Hancock in Parliament earlier this week mentioned um, yeah, he was kind of talking about young people that perhaps were, I don't know, going out and meeting or you know, all, you know, all that stuff. And he was saying, actually, they want to think maybe 
it's not just old people that can be you know, infected. You can have much younger people who have long-term illnesses. And I think that you're completely right. It, it skews our understanding because what we know is that, realistically speaking, someone my age, you know, uh, 27, they're very unlikely to have a severe case of the illness, very, very unlikely to, to die. But there are people my age or a bit older who have had really, really long uh, symptoms, and we don't really know how many of people, how many of those people there are. So if you start accounting for that, it might change all of the equations that you make around this illness and how you um, think about risk, and also how employers think about well, when should people be back to work? Maybe I should understand that they won't be back full time for several months because it could be this severe so I think a lot of people I spoke to said that we just need more of a conversation about the range of illnesses that COVID-19 can prompt because that might uh, help people see it have a more holistic view of the disease itself. Well let's see if we can continue that conversation podcast at wired.co.uk have you had a case of COVID-19 that's taken you a long time to get over what sort of long-term symptoms have you been suffering with or if you know someone in a similar situation podcast at wired.co.uk and do have a read of Matt's piece we'll include a link to it in the show notes it's a fascinating if somewhat depressing read our second story this week Matt Burgess is about sandwiches it is so over the last few podcasts and last few weeks and months we've talked a lot about the things uh, that we used to do in the before times and how uh, everything has changed and sort of the response to those uh, issues now uh, so we've talked about working in the office uh, we've talked about sort of uh, getting to the office commuting sort of what you do when you're in the building the air that's there uh, lots of different things but this week we're sort of thinking about uh lunchtime uh and uh, as a question to you all just before we sort of like go up uh, go, go into this story a little bit more detail have your lunch regimes radically changed uh since you've been working remotely and from home for the last few months well you you know the answer to this because i used to sit next to you and that and now i don't um so i i no longer go to the market with Matt Burgess for lunch once or twice a week. I no longer sit at my desk and quickly eat a sandwich. Uh, no longer walk around the block with you, Matt Burgess. It's a, it's a daily pain. Um, I guess I save a lot of money, uh, but lunch is, is somehow lonelier and sadder um, in, in the, the new normal. Matt? Oh, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll jump in. So uh, my favourite lunch back in our offices in London was to go to uh, Berwick Street in Soho and have a £5 falafel wrap. Very filling, excellent value. Obviously, I've moved to Bologna in Italy, so quite far to go, even though I would make a saving on the lunch. But I have found a falafel place that is just down the road from me, probably a I don't know, a 10-minute ten, a ten walk or so. So I have been replacing one lunch a week with that falafel. So it's like I've got a little bit of Berwick Street you know, in my heart. And it's even cheaper. It's €3.50, which is a pretty good bargain for a falafel wrap. That makes me very jealous. My, my lunchtime routine is uh, deeply, deeply boring now. So when we were in, in central London, there was obviously loads of variety and you could like, yeah, go to the market and get all sorts of different stuff. Now I very much just eat toast for lunch every single day, which is very dull. What do you put on the toast? Uh, usually peanut butter. Yeah. Uh, sometimes cheese. Uh, if, if, if I'm having, uh, particularly uh, for a special treat, I sometimes still go to uh, Pratt uh, for lunch as a, as a <laughs> special, special treat on a Friday because there's one within walking distance of our flat. 
which brings us sort of neatly onto what we're actually talking about here. So you mentioned Pret there, Amit, which is uh, one of your uh, old favourite haunts to be going to uh, for lunch. And um, before we begin, I just want to give a little bit of context about uh about Pret for people who aren't in the UK and particularly sort of outside London. So um, the reason we're talking about it is a very popular chain of uh, sandwich shop and food shop uh, in London. There are sort of several hundred branches of it. Um, and recently it's gone into uh, or had a lot of financial troubles and said it's making a lot of staff redundant. And why we're talking about this now is sort of how Pret is trying to respond to uh, the sort of situation that it's found itself in and uh, sort of evolve its business into sort of something that can survive despite being in financial difficulties. Um, so if you if you really don't have a clue about what Pret is, it is a sandwich shop that does sort of like uh, uh, pastries in the morning, some some warm porridge, a few breakfast things. Uh, for lunches, it has a variety of sandwiches and uh, different types of hot food uh it's essentially meant to be a, a shop that is something that is very quick to go to uh and sort of serves decent quality food at sort of like a i don't want to say a reasonable price but it's not not particularly cheap and there's there's just lots of them around london so in the piece that we reported this week one of uh one of the people we spoke to said that they were going there for uh getting a coffee and a pastry in the morning getting a lunch and sandwich uh drink and crisps and a a dessert at lunchtime and they were spending roughly sort of 300 to 350 pounds a month essentially on uh just getting food from pret um and over the last few years since 1986 when the store uh first appeared in london um it has sort of like exploded in popularity uh it took three years uh for pret to open its second shop after its first one was opened but by 1998 there were more than 50 with Pret serving 20 million customers a year uh, and then by 2017 it was serving uh, 1.4 million coffees a day uh, and before the pandemic it had reached 400 shops in the UK 300 of which were in London um, and if, you, if you've if you never seen a Pret you can uh, very much sort of in parts of London there are uh, well where we work in uh, sort of uh, central London there are sort of four Prets within about a two minute walk so it's a shop that is pretty omnipresent has expanded to some other countries but overall is very London centric uh, and has been dwarfed across the UK by lots of other stores so there are more than a thousand Starbucks there are um, again more than a thousand McDonald's Costa there's 2,400 of them and there's uh, nearly 2,000 Greggs as well. So if my experience was, you know, um, representative, and I think this is kind of fair, as you said, Pret is never your, it's not your dream lunch, but it is a very reliable lunch. You know, I, if I, I wasn't thinking in a rush, I would go there, grab it, get back to my desk. It wasn't the type of place that I would go out of my way to find, say, if I was at home. In the whole time that I was working from home in London, didn't venture to a Pret once. So I'm guessing the pandemic has hit Pret rather hard is that right yeah it has you're you're very much right so uh in the piece that we reported this week uh sort of a couple of the people that we spoke to uh from uh the business school which used to be cass uh said that uh in the in london and the uk uh pret is very sort of like synonymous with the type of lunches that office workers have uh so sort of like 
quickly go into the shop, buying a pret, walking out. The company uh, tries to serve everybody uh, that goes in within 60 seconds. Um, and then once you've got this pret, once you've got this uh, slightly warm wrap, eating it uh, quickly, 10 minutes in front of your computer. Um, and in its latest results before the pandemic started, uh, the company uh, turned over £710 million in 2018. So hugely successful, making lots of money and profit. And then obviously the pandemic hit. Um, and at the end of August, it said that it was closing 30 of its outlets and axing around sort of 2,800 jobs across the chain, which was more than people had predicted to begin to. Uh, so the sort of leadership at Pret also said when they made the announcement of these job cuts and store uh, closures that uh, trading was down 60% compared to a year ago. That's obviously because lots of people aren't going into the city. They're not going to Pret. The shops have been shut. Um, and essentially sort of some of their weekly turnover during August was at the levels that they were seeing 10 years ago when the company was uh, a lot smaller, had a lot fewer chains and really not quite as successful. It's a bit of a weird one, isn't it? I think we, we'd all agree that um, Pret does does lunch a little bit better than supermarket refrigerated sandwiches. But the level of success that it's been able to get in London is kind of unprecedented. It really is everywhere. So what did it do differently to become so successful before the pandemic hit? I think it was really just about sort of being a very precise and convenient so uh will our reporter who wrote this story and we'll put a link in the show notes uh spoke to a few people at the company and sort of uh people who have worked there in the past and, and one person told him that um that their data collection essentially is sort of really precise quite large uh and they could go back to uh through certain databases to find out how many bananas were sold on a particular day in particular windows of time in individual stores uh and really sort of like analyzing what they were doing um their um their country manager for the uk uh, said that Pret is able to uh, predict its busiest day for breakfast sandwiches sort of a year in advance. They, they're going to know which day is the most popular, when they're going to sell the most amount of things. And the company also has used a lot of sort of predictive uh, algorithms to adjust its production for each store. So if one store uh, runs out of macaroni cheese one day, um, they're basically able to automatically adjust the ingredients that are sent to it the next day. And one of the uh, sort of things that has sort of made Pret uh, very uh, successful in terms of uh, it spread across London is, as I said, there's lots of stores that are near each other quite often. So you're only a few streets away from a Pret in many cases. And they have a sort of like infrastructure set up around these as well. So uh, a lot of the bigger shops that have kitchens, they cook a lot of food and then sort of ship it to the smaller uh, smaller Prets, which don't have kitchens to make their own stuff. So if you are walking around London at certain times, you can see people with pushing trolleys around the streets, which have got food in, which I always assumed was for them doing some sort of delivery um, rather than sort of like stocking up their own sort of like satellite stores. Um, so that was also a very data focused as well. And there was also uh, where they picked their stores uh, was not really random either. So uh, that they uh, have analyzed lots of data points around sort of locations, historic sales, footfalls in areas, organizational structures, uh, and really tried to sort of like make uh, the press bit Preps that they have built be in the sort of best places for getting passing trade and people coming by and near offices. So essentially, once they'd done that, they'd obviously built sort of like 
the shops in sort of any way that I guess uh, retail outlets of this would want to do. But having lots of corner locations with large windows, which boasted sort of like very big visibility, made the stores very bright, lots of natural light um, and these sorts of areas. Uh, some of the shops that they talk on in the past were sort of uh, vastly underrated by landlords. Like I think, Pret, I mean, Pret is obviously really interesting to us, but I mean, before I, before you kind of send us angry emails about really being really London-centric, I think part of the reason that we're talking about it is because it's kind of indicative of what the challenges that a lot of businesses are going to face, particularly businesses in big cities that are kind of built around having a certain kind of density of people. So, uh, you know, a lot of these businesses are going to have to reinvent themselves if the way we work changes and, and there aren't going to be as many people in the centre of cities going into offices and things like that. So... I mean, what happens next for Pratt and, and what, I guess, what can other businesses that, you know, occupy similar areas kind of learn from them? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question because lots of companies, as you say, will be going through this sort of thought process and scenario. Um, I mean, even with office buildings, people are obviously considering uh, whether their workers need to come back to them full time or whether they should come back to them full time and sort of having longer term planning and strategy around uh, how the world of work is changing. And that obviously does affect businesses that are based in city centres, which are in uh, either the retail or hospitality spaces um, and sort of viewing this through the lens of Pret, it is thinking about its business in in uh, sort of what comes next and how it can offer different things to different company, uh, different consumers. Uh, so it is thinking uh, more about uh, suburban branches now, so not focusing so much on London, uh, doing deliveries in cities, uh, offering sort of more meal deals and subscriptions. So it announced a sort of coffee subscription recently that people could uh, sign up for and uh, and and just, yeah, get a certain amount of coffees in a certain amount of time for a set price which is something that um, it as a chain hasn't done I mean obviously there are loyalty schemes at lots of other companies and uh, places already so that's not particularly new but they also say they're entering the grocery market so uh, selling more pre-packaged food uh, and also opening a dark kitchen in London which are the sort of kitchens that appear on um, uh, Deliveroo and Just Eat and services like that that don't have a place for customers to go but it's just a pure or kitchen space where food is produced and then sold on and delivered um so Pret is also sort of saying the ceo told us that it's thinking about sort of expansion to other countries um and sort of learning some of the lessons that they've had from uh establishments in hong kong and france and bringing them back across um and yeah the ceo told us that essentially that everything that they sort of had planned in terms of their longer term business growth strategies they've now sort of had to rethink and um, really try and implement things that could bring in more revenue to make up the shortfalls of people being in the office or not being in the office and visiting Pret uh, a lot faster so uh, I think it's the company itself is going through a lot of change and lots of sort of uh, restructuring and thinking about what it offers to people and what it can offer to people um, and there's probably a lot of things that it's doing that other businesses can think about as well. I was reading a really interesting essay from an economist about how bad the situation is for businesses like Pret. Um, and their argument was that so much of city economies is based on unnecessary movement. So we all commute. We don't necessarily need to. But that unnecessary movement is the, the lifeblood. It's the money that pumps into all of the establishments that pop up around train stations and city centre locations where no one lives but everyone moves into and because they're moving 
they want convenience, they want things quickly, and they're willing to pay more for it. So talking about people spending £15 a day on PrEP, that only makes sense because people are in a rush. When people are no longer in a rush, are no longer inconvenienced by being somewhere that they don't need to be, then all of a sudden the rents in that area can no longer be justified. So when Pratt's talking about renegotiating leases, it's a it's a really tricky issue because its business model doesn't make sense if it's not getting loads and loads of people into those shops all the time. It works the same for pubs and restaurants and landowners and building owners are going to be in a really difficult situation where they need someone in. But who's going to be willing to pay for premium city centre locations that are now the equivalent of ghost towns. And is Pret's business model really going to work in suburbia? It's so reliant on those networks of stores incredibly densely packed together so that it can run efficiently. It doesn't make sense to spread it across an entire country. So these are really tricky questions for how city centres operate, right? Yeah, they are. And I think that's a, it's a really good point to say that um, people uh, obviously sort of when they're not going to offices in, in cities or uh, in towns that they're not doing that sort of like unexpected uh, task or jobs or spending. So um, nobody necessarily sets out to prep as a, a as a destination that you would go to in the same way that you might be working in a town centre and then think, oh, at lunchtime, I need to go and buy some new clothes from some from some retailer or I need to pop to the pub and have a, have a drink with some friends or catch up. Those sorts of movements are, um, they've all just been limited and they, those obviously have a huge effect on uh, high streets, whether they're in, in, in big cities or in smaller towns. Uh, and we've seen over recent years as well, sort of like the impacts that uh, the uh, growth of online shopping has had on uh, more traditional high streets with lots of shops closing. Um, and I think that sort of the pandemic has probably exacerbated a lot of the problems that people have had in these uh in these retail spaces already um and there's no necessarily easy answer in terms of what comes next over the next year when we're still looking to uh create a vaccine and and get people back to moving towards sort of normal behaviors podcast at wired.co.uk what is your new well probably not new by now your lunch routine look like in the coronavirus age have you rustled up some really, really great things for lunch, or are you uh, surviving on peanut butter on toast? Podcast at wired.co.uk. Let us know what we uh, should be eating for lunch. Our third and final story, Amit, is about the police and lying. Yes, that's right. So um, the polygraph machine or the lie detector has been around for almost 100 years. In fact, its uh, 100th anniversary is in uh, 2021. Um, But it's never really caught on in this country in the same way that it has in the United States, for example, where there are an estimated 3 million tests a year. In Britain, we're probably most familiar with it from its use on daytime TV shows like the Jeremy Kyle show. Um, But that's starting to change. The polygraph is very slowly creeping into British policing, uh, which a lot of people might not know. So since 2007, it's been used with sex offenders to assess whether they are likely to re-offend if released. And now two bills that are working their way through Parliament are set to expand the use of the polygraph even further in Britain. So the first targets domestic abusers who have been deemed at a high risk of causing serious harm. Uh, The domestic abuse bill makes provisions for a three-year pilot study during which 300 offenders will take a lie detector test three months after release and then every six months after that. So they won't be jailed for failing the test, but they could be jailed if they refuse to take it or if they try to trick it, according to Home Office. And then the second bill is around terrorists, uh, terrorist offenders. So again, it's about assessing whether um, people that have been convicted of terror crimes are likely to re-offend if released. Um, but new research that's been done paints a kind of worrying picture of polygraph use and a 
lack of transparency around how it's being used in the UK. Now, this is deeply concerning because I'm aware of lie detector tests, polygraph tests, but I always chalked them up in my head as something that kind of Americans have and it's weird and we'll never use it here. So this is pretty disturbing. But maybe let's go back to basics because if they're using polygraph tests, there must be a reason, it must be detecting something. So how, how do these tests actually work? Yeah, well, so they, I mean, they claim to work. So they, they measure, the polygraph test measures blood pressure, heart rate, breathing and sweat. Uh, and it's been used as a supposed lie detector, as I said, for yeah, almost a century now. Um, although it's never been admissible in court in the United States, it is routinely used by police forces during investigations and it's used for screening candidates for jobs in the military and national security over there. Uh, so it works uh, on the premise that your involuntary kind of physical reactions can give clues about your internal state and what you're thinking. So that for, if you're lying, for example, your heart rate will increase or you'll start to sweat. Which is kind of ridiculous because not everyone lies in the same way. And it's not it's not quite the right example. But <clears throat> when my partner was pregnant a couple of years ago um, and they test your blood pressure to make sure that the, the mother and baby is healthy um she had sort of seemingly white coat syndrome so her blood pressure would be completely normal until it came to the moment where it needed testing and then it would spike up so it was really really difficult to get an accurate reading and effectively the doctor had to trick her into calming down so they could get an accurate reading and understand what was actually happening there are all sorts of variables in this that sort of go against scientific rigor so this can't be a good thing for police to be using, given what we know about how different people react to being put in situations like this. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the biggest thing about the polygraph is is that it just doesn't work. It, it's never worked. Um, you know, it, it can be effective at getting confessions out of people, but the idea that a machine can detect lies has been repeatedly debunked on, on numerous occasions over the years. And, and the problem is, as you say, James, that we're all different. There's no kind of single uh, telltale sign of lying that applies to everyone all the time so you know lie detector researchers call this the pinocchio's nose you know and it, it, it doesn't exist you know there's, there's nothing that that uh, will signal that one person is lying that that will also be true of another person so you know some people might appear to be deceptive when they're actually telling the truth um and the polygraph helped to perpetrate some serious miscarriages of justice when that's happened this also means that the test is really easy to beat if you've had a little bit of training um, you know, it, it's, it's been proven that uh, Soviet spies, for example, were organised and, and, you know, all you need to do is uh, kind of control your uh, kind of physical responses to questions or, or artificially ramp up your, your responses to, to certain questions to make the ones you're lying look less bad, for example. Um, and then there are big problems with bias as well. So, so much of the, the testing depends on who the individual polygraph examiner that's testing you uh, actually is. So, um Research in the United States has found that ethnic minorities are much more likely to fail a polygraph, for example. Um, and there was one paper from the United States that found that a certain polygraph tester in Washington state was failing one in 10 of the people they tested for bestiality. Yeah. So um, that's like, there's a really sort of like, well, the picture is just not there in terms of like the scientific evidence that this works or is useful. Um, and you mentioned at the top, there's sort of like new research on sort of like what's happening in the UK. So what do we know about how it is creeping into policing here already? So, so this is part of the problem. So we know that the government is very keen to kind of expand its use, but we don't really know how it's being used at the moment. So yeah, as you said, Matt, a new study from legal researchers at Northumbria Law School um, sent Freedom of Information Act requests to um, every police force in the UK to kind of ask them, 
you know, if and how they're using the polygraph. And they were basically were largely reluctant to provide any details. So of the 46 replies that they got, 37 police forces issued a neither confirm nor deny response. So they basically declined to comment. Um, so the researchers kind of uh, requested for those initial decisions to be reviewed. And then some forces came back and said that they don't use the polygraph in an overt capacity, um, although they didn't really explain what they meant by that. Um, so only five um, forces denied using it entirely. But for the others, we just have no idea if they're using it, how they're using it. Um, and there's very little oversight and regulation. So although using the polygraph is discouraged by the National Police Chiefs Council, that's about it. You know, there's there's no kind of legal framework for it, its use or non-use. Um, and there are trials popping up looking at using it as a bail condition, for example, or using it on people who have been suspected but not yet convicted of online sexual offences. So, you know, using it on people who have not been convicted of any crime, you know, so far, for example. So... This sounds like a stupid question, I think, because I feel like we're already through the looking glass here and it's maybe a little bit late to be asking this question if you're saying that the government's been having this creep in since 2007. But if it doesn't work, if you've got a whole body of evidence that says that it, it, it doesn't really work, it, 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 it's just not capable of doing what it's purported to be doing, why is the government using it then? Yeah, so, I mean, I think... <laughs> there's kind of a clue in the groups that are being targeted so you look at the three groups that have been targeted so far it's it's, it's sex offenders domestic abusers and terrorists it's it's three groups that the government kind of wants to look tough on right and the polygraph usually gets wheeled out when a government wants to look tough on crime um and it's not just it's not just the labor government you know it's it's uh, sorry it's not just the conservative government labor did something similar um in the mid-2000s when it kind of suggested using another type of lie detector on benefit claimants um again that, that was a, using a type of technology that also didn't work um so it's a very convenient way of government to kind of grandstand and posture and say, look, we're doing something, we're taking action, we're going to put these people on a lie detector test. Um, so the latest move, moves around the um, using it on terror suspects comes after the London Bridge uh, terror attacks in 2019, which were carried out by Usman Khan, who was uh, out on um, kind of license on parole, basically. So uh, this was one of the recommendations that came out of a report into to that incident and, and suggested that if he had been subjected to a polygraph he would have failed it and and wouldn't have been released but i mean there's no guarantee of that right because these machines as we've discussed are flawed um and the worry is that without any sort of like robust regulation the use of the polygraph is going to kind of continue to creep and grow into more and more cases i don't think anyone's suggesting that it'll ever be used in court in the uk but you know failed tests could form the basis of false confessions or they could form the basis of kind of flawed investigations where you know, um, if you failed a polygraph test, um, police officers kind of see patterns in the evidence that might just be confirmation bias, for instance. Um, so in their paper, the researchers from Northumbria Law School, they argue for an urgent halt on any further use of the polygraph and an independent public investigation into its current use with um, independent oversight and scrutiny. Because otherwise, you've got this expanding use of a machine which doesn't actually work. And that could give us a kind of false sense of security um, you know, if we're using it to assess whether sex offenders and terrorists are safe to be released and we're getting it wrong, that could have really serious consequences. It's so bizarre that a hundred years after its invention, almost, that we're in a position where it's been widely discredited. It does not work, yet its use is expanding. Has I mean, is the technology such as it is, quote unquote, improving to make the argument that it might one day work? Or is this whole notion of a Pinocchio's nose just total bunkum? 
Yeah, the, I mean, the, pre- the very premise is flawed, right? So, I mean, it's not just the polygraph itself. I mean, the, the, what's amazing is the polygraph technology itself has literally not changed. Um, in the 80s, there was a drive to kind of take some of the um, subjectivity out of it. So they developed these kind of um, objective algorithms that could be used to kind of assess the, the reading so that it wasn't just the examiner kind of assessing whether or not you're lying from looking at a chart. But they just weren't very popular at all because I think polygraph examiners don't actually want, you, you know, they want to kind of use the charts to as a form of kind of psychological coercion basically to to kind of put pressure on a suspect to to you know force them into a confession that's what the polygraphs are used for um and a bunch of new technologies have sprung up that claim to be able to detect lies using brain scans or you know using um pupil dilation or using ai um but they all um fail on this premise that you know they all rely on the premise that there is a telltale sign of lying and there's no evidence to suggest that that's the case it's as with a lot of stories we talk about on the podcast one that warrants an awful lot more investigation and as you said there Amit the research that was done didn't provide clear answers and as the government looks to expand seemingly its use those clear answers really need to be given podcast at wired.co.uk with your thoughts on that story or anything else that we've talked about on the show this week time for a couple of your emails now. Matt Burgess, what's been in the inbox? Elliot wrote in, to, uh, in from London to say that they were, they've been a new listener from the start of this year and uh, thank you for very much uh, doing the podcast, uh, doing it weekly uh, and uh, they have been listening to it on their commute uh, saying, yes, I'm still an office person. Um, and they were writing in about Natasha's four-day week story from last week um, and Elliot says that they uh, were told that they were going to be put on a four-day week uh, on an 80% salary and they sort of were looking forward to it in, in some ways because there's a similar scheme in New Zealand which cut people's work down to four days a week to promote sort of like internal tourism um, and sort of gave everybody essentially or not everybody gave lots of people as part of the scheme a day off uh, as part of sort of a a longer weekend but then Elliot's situation uh, they uh, essentially sort of had um, their salary cut uh, and also their daily working hours cut so every single day they were cut by one one and a half to two hours so still going in still working five days a week um, but essentially uh, sort of having the having the pay cut uh, and ultimately Elliot said that this made no difference because they ended up doing more work when they were uh, on the days when they were still working so uh, many of the hours sort of like it, it was essentially just a pay cut um, and didn't really sort of make the difference in that way. Um, so they said that to make the four-day week a government supported scheme will give more people freedom uh, to spend more money and to boost the economy in their local area or in other areas of the country. Um, so yeah, really sort of uh, interesting uh, and a bit worrying in terms of the employer's sake uh, case study there. And you've got a fairly large scale living trial of this. It's called a bank holiday weekend, right? We see in in the UK and the US anywhere that has a public holiday um, on a Monday or a Friday, everyone goes and does something. It unlocks so much activity within the economy. There's sort of the great escape to the countryside or airports get really busy because everyone wants to use that extra day to to do something. So it makes total sense that if you were to roll those out across a year, that it would unlock potentially more economic activity. Uh, Amits, you've got another email. Yes, that's right. Uh, Ryan wrote in, who's a long-time fan of the podcast, and says they loved listening to it while they were travelling, and it's helped them through lockdown, so that's lovely to hear. 
Um, he says he loved the recent segment explaining how lifts and social distancing rules are preventing officers from returning to normality. We talked about how it might take, you know, hours to get down to lunch and back. Um, he says that he's just started returning to his office and it's a bit of a ghost town. Uh, but he does point out that he was surprised that during the two weeks of coming back, there have been two fire drills already. So he's wondering whether officers are performing compulsory fire drills while the numbers are low to bring down the average evacuation time. This could be a big story. It does seem like a strange thing for a building manager to do, sort of sitting there twiddling their thumbs. Maybe they just want to be entertained. Yeah, I guess they've been on their own basically for, for six months, so maybe they're just <laughs> you know exercising the power that they have now that people are actually back in the building. Pressing the big red button to make all the ants run. Podcast at wired.co.uk. <laughs> Please do get in touch. We really like getting your emails. And thanks, as always, for listening this week. We'll be back again same time next week. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.